Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast. On today's episode, we sit down with Skip Disjardin, author of the new book, September 1918, War, Plague, in the World Series. With this year being the 100th anniversary of the 1918 World Series between the Red Sox and the Cubs, Skip will speak to some of the issues described in his book, including an introduction to a young Babe Ruth, the impact World War I had on baseball, and even a pay dispute that almost brought the World Series to a premature end. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We're joined by Skip Disjardin, author of September 1918, War, Plague, in the World Series. Thanks for joining us today, Skip. Thanks, Jared. I'm happy to do it. So to start, for those who might not be familiar with yourself, why don't you give us a bit of background on yourself, and then what got you motivated to write this book? I'm uh, born and raised in New England. Uh, Went off to college at Notre Dame, but very shortly thereafter came back. Uh, But I've been uh, in television and the media for the last 35 years. Uh, and a number of different stops along the way. I was a I was a, uh, a producer of live events. I've been in the programming uh, area. I've done a whole bunch of different things in sports and television over that thirty five years. Um, and I've, in addition to all that, sort of been just a fan of sports, and also had a real interest in history my whole life. And uh, at one point when I was riding the train commuting into New York City, I was reading a, a ton of novels on the train ride back and forth and and uh, read a book by an author named Dennis Lehane, who's a Boston guy. He's written a number of best-selling books, some of which have been made into really popular movies like Gone Baby Gone and Mystic mm-hmm. River. And he wrote a novel called The Given Day that was set in Boston in 1919. And two of the characters in that novel really captured my attention. One was Babe Ruth. But not fat, pigeon-toed Babe Ruth that we think of moving in fast motion in old newsreels. Um, this was young, vibrant, in his prime Babe Ruth. 23 years old, at once the, the perhaps the best pitcher in baseball and certainly the best hitter in baseball. And that image of Ruth as, I guess, the modern-day equivalent of Mike Trout. Uh, really grabbed me. And the other character was Calvin Coolidge, who I'm in, a little embarrassed to say I had always thought of as being a guy from Vermont. But uh, he's a central character in this novel, and he is the governor of Massachusetts in 1919, which he was. And I had no idea in my own head that Calvin Coolidge had been a politician in Massachusetts. So that got my wheels turning a little bit. And in the book, they talk quite a bit about events that had happened the year before, and specifically the World Series because of the Ruth connection and the Spanish flu and the effects that it had in Boston. So now I started to think, well, why was the World Series played in September? And why in the world would anybody go out to Fenway Park and get crammed into those little tiny seats I know, that was in a big crowd at exactly the point in time in which going out and being a crowd in a crowd could literally kill you. Uh, and in my own family, I have uh, had a great grandfather who died of the Spanish flu. So I started to look into that. You know, why is the World Series in September, and what what's going on with the flu, and just for my own personal edification. And that's when I started to find some of the other events that were taking place and how many things 
around the country and around the world in this month of September 1918 had a direct connection to Boston. And after I discovered a few and then a few more and a few after that, started to think there might be a book here. So you talked about Babe Ruth being one of your focal points when it came time to starting the book. And, and I think that was one of the more interesting parts of the book to me is learning about early Babe Ruth. Um, particularly one thing that interested me was the conflict between him and the manager of the Red Sox at the time. Ruth seemed to want to play every single day. He'd pitch every day if he wanted to hit. He just wanted to be out there. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that relationship between Ruth and the manager at the time? Look, Ruth acted like a kid well into <laughs> middle age. But at the time, he really was a kid. And you're right, wanted to be on the field every day. And yet, uh, had always been a pitcher in the big leagues. A very good hitting pitcher, but a pitcher nonetheless. And a couple of things sort of fell into place that in that season of 1918 that that made Ruth into the player that he eventually became. Part of it was that rosters were thin. The Over half of the Red Sox roster from 1917 was gone by 1918. They were either enlisted or had a job in a war-related mm-hmm. factory somewhere. Um, and that was what I finally found was the answer to my question of why was the World Series played in September. Because the government had issued what was known as the work or fight order. They said by July 1st, every man in America between the ages of 21 and 30 have three choices. Enlist, make yourself eligible for the draft, or get a job in a war-related industry. Not just any job. You can't sell shoes in a shoe store. you got to have a job that is directly related to the war. And so a whole bunch of Major League Baseball players, seeing that that date was coming up on July 1st, Sort of jump ship. Dutch Leonard, maybe the Red Sox best pitcher, uh, got a job at the Quincy Four River Shipyard. Um, Fred Thomas, their third baseman, enlisted in the Navy. So the Red Sox were thin. And in early May, Harry Hooper was a veteran outfielder for the Red Sox who'd been working on manager Ed Barrow for a while, finally convinced Barrow that he ought to give Ruth a chance to play every day. Barrow was adamantly opposed He's like, they'll, they'll, I'll be a laughingstock in baseball if I take one of the best pitchers in the game and turn him into a hitter. But Hooper had two arguments in his favor. The first one was, he can hit. The second one was, do you really want Babe Ruth standing around with nothing to do three out of every four days? <laughs> Which Barrow did not. Yeah. So he put him in the lineup for the first time in his career as something other than a pitcher on May 6th of 1918. Uh, and as luck would have it, the owner of the Red Sox, Harry Frizee, was sitting in the stands next to Colonel Jacob Rupert, who was the owner of the Yankees, and Ruth homered in that game. And the story goes that Rupert immediately turned to Frizee and said, I'll give you $100,000 for Ruth right now. Which Frizee turned down, but only for the time being, as we yeah. know. Um, and then Ruth, Ruth went on a tear. He went on a 10-game hitting streak. He was hitting the cover off the ball and finding excuses not to pitch. Oh, my left hand hurts. It doesn't hurt so much that I can't hit. It just hurts so much that I can't pitch. That left the Red Sox with just a three-man rotation. And now they were getting tired. They were wearing out. And so Barrow and Ruth went back and forth with Ruth wanting to be a full-time hitter and Barrow wanting him to be a full-time pitcher. It eventually all blew up in July when Ruth uh, went up to the plate. Barrow said to him, hey, I want you to take a couple of pitches. 
And he promptly swung at the very first pitch. And Barrow had had enough. They'd been, they'd been arguing for two months at this point, And Barrow just blew up at him. And Ruth threatened to punch him in the nose. And Barrow said, that's a $500 fine. And Ruth said, really? So he took off his uniform and sat in the stands and watched the rest of the game. And then disappeared and went home. And no one had realized it because they were playing in Washington. And the team left and got on the train and went to Philadelphia for the next series. And no Ruth. He sent word back that he had joined the shipyard team in Baltimore and he wasn't coming back. Two days later, he was back. Yeah. yeah. And I think we saw this culminate and really blow up in the World Series. Yes, absolutely. That, that tension between the two of them would remain. Now, Barrow was in a kind of a tough spot. He wanted to use Ruth to win games. Look, the American League record for home runs in a season in 1918 was 16. At the end of June, Ruth had 10. He could hit. Yeah. So Barrow kind of wanted that to happen, but also the the strain of playing every day, despite what Ruth said, oh, I'll play every day, I'll pitch every day, I don't care, was really starting to wear on him. And from the end of June to the end of, the, end of uh, August, at the end of the regular season, he only hit one more home run because he was physically wearing down. Yeah. And by the time the World Series rolled around, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, uh, Barrow went back to his old stance yeah. and said, you're a pitcher and that's all I'm going to use you as. So let's set the scene and get into the World Series. We've got the Red Sox and the Cubs, uh, which would be a premium World Series today. But at the time, the owners ended up being pretty upset with gate receipts, things of that nature in terms of the World Series. It actually didn't bring that buzz that it would today. What were some of the causes for that? Well, the biggest cause was that what we would think of today as baseball's target audience, men, young men, middle-aged men, were all meeting one of those three criteria of the worker fight order. They were either serving in the military somewhere, or they were uh, down registering at their draft board, or they were they had a job that was directly related to the war. Look, the government was serious about that order. There, there was a point in late summer in Chicago at a Cubs game, a doubleheader, where the federal government locked the gates to Wiegman Field, now known as Wrigley Field, between games of the doubleheader, and checked every man in the stands. What's your draft status? What's your job? And hundreds of guys got hauled off to jail because they weren't adhering to the worker fight order. So they were serious about this thing. And so there was nobody to buy tickets. I mean, some people went to the games, but it was harder to draw a crowd because so many men were not available. Keep in mind, these were all afternoon games. So it was hard to get people out. And money was tight. Families were taking whatever leftover income they had to try to directly support the war by buying war bonds. So it, they were in a tough spot to begin with. Attendance overall at baseball was down 40% in 1918 over the year before. They should have seen it coming. And yet on the day of game one at Comiskey Park, because Chicago chose to play their games at Comiskey because there were more seats and they figured they'd sell more tickets. Uh, that game ended up getting rained up, but when the box office opened in the morning for people to buy tickets, there were only 50 people in line. And the National Commission, which is the three men who ran baseball at the time, this was before the Black Sox scandal and yeah. Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis became the sort of ruler of baseball, uh, they panicked and they cut ticket prices back to regular season rates. And still they couldn't sell 
a bunch of tickets. So the games in Chicago were at best two thirds full, sometimes closer to half full. Um, and they weren't making anywhere near as much money as they had the previous World Series. Mm-hmm. Like today, players get World Series shares based on the ticket sales from the first four games. That's it. They don't want players artificially making the series seven games long in order to get more money. So they get their money in the first four games. And at the beginning of the World Series, the commission had given some paperwork to every player to sort of explain how the money was going to be divided up, but none of the players paid any attention to it. And there were some changes from the way it had been in the past. And one of those changes was, for the first time, the second, third, and fourth place teams in both the American and the National League were going to get a cut of those gate receipts. So players were already behind the eight ball. But they didn't realize it until the series began to shift from Chicago to Boston. And the first three games ended up with the Red Sox winning two out of those three. Ruth pitched game one, complete game shutout. Uh, in game two, because the Cubs were throwing a left-handed pitcher and the manager wouldn't play Ruth on a day when he wasn't pitching, he sat on the bench. And it cost the Red Sox the game because late in the ninth inning, they had two runners on and one out and Ruth on the bench with a bat in his hand, ready to come up and pinch hit. They didn't call his number not just once, twice. Barrow left him, the, well, the person who became the greatest power hitter in the game, with two men on, trailing by two in the ninth, doesn't have Ruth come up and pinch hit. Hey, you're not playing today. It's not your day to pitch. You're on the bench. They lose that game, but they come back and win game three before the series heads back to Boston. So given the conflict between the players, the owners, how close do you think the World Series actually came to prematurely ending? Because there was talk from the players of just saying, we're done with this, right? It came incredibly close in Boston. The... uh, it was on the train ride from Chicago to Boston that things started to really get ugly. The Because of the war, the teams were on the same train. That never happened. They typically took their own trains. Uh, not only were they on that same train, it was just a regularly scheduled train with some extra cars added to it. Uh, and so they were mingling amongst each other, and they started to talk, and they started to find out that, A... The Red Sox were getting paid all the way to September 15th as if it were the regular season. And then we're going to get a World Series share on top of that. The Cubs pay had ended on Labor Day when the regular season ended. That didn't make them happy. And Harry Hooper, again, college graduate, veteran player, had some time on the train and sat down and actually read the paperwork that the National Commission had given them. And realized, wait a minute, they're giving a cut to the second, third, and fourth place teams? And this line in here that we all kind of casually looked at about 2,000 of the winners, 1,000 of the losers, which they thought was the minimum they were going to get, was actually the maximum they were going to get, regardless of how much money came in in ticket sales. So now they're really angry. And they're trying to meet with the commission, but only two out of the three commissioners are on the train, and so they put them off. Wait till we get to Boston. We'll talk to you as soon as we get to Boston. They get to Boston, they go to the commission's hotel, and the commission isn't there. And they wait for hours, and they can't get an appointment to see the commissioners. Finally, they reach them on the phone, and one of them says, look, game four is coming up. We'll play game four, then we'll know exactly what ticket sales look like, and we'll know exactly how the money's going to be divided, so let's play game four, and we'll talk after. 
Played game four. Red Sox win. Now they're up three to one. And they go to the hotel where the commission is and they want to talk after game four and say, okay, let's let's divide the money. And the commission won't talk to them. And now they're furious. So the next day before game five, the players get together. The Cubs and the Red Sox. First in the hotel. And then in one of the dressing rooms, one of the locker rooms at Fenway Park. And they decide, we are not playing. Until we figure out exactly how much we're getting paid, we're not going to play. And it started to get to be game time, and there's nobody on the field warming up. Some of the players are walking through the stands in their street clothes. But there's no public address announcement. There's no talk radio. There's no pregame show. Nobody knows what's going on. But they know something is up. And now there are Boston-mounted police officers on horses on the field at Fenway because they feel like there's going to be trouble. Yeah. And there's going to be trouble. It just isn't going to be in the stands. It's going to be under the stands. They finally, the commission, the three commissioners show up. And a meeting is arranged in the umpire's dressing room with two representatives, one from each of the Cubs and the Red Sox, a couple other players, the three guys on the commission, some writers. There's even a couple fans in there. They're all crammed into this little room. And two out of the three baseball commissioners are so drunk they can barely stand up. And this amazing scene starts to take place because essentially the players are on strike. They are not going to play until they figure out their money. And now they can't get a straight answer for the commission. And Harry Hooper finally, in frustration, turns to the press and says, gentlemen, you can see we're not making any progress here. There's nobody here we can talk to because there's nobody here who can talk. And he storms off to the locker room to once again talk to both teams. And he says something really interesting, which is if the Red Sox win today, the series is over and we won't be able to negotiate. We're going to get stuck with whatever they pay us. Lo and behold, the Red Sox lose. So over the last few years have been a lot of talk about the 1918 series and whether the Cubs threw the series the way the White Sox did the following year. And in fact, somebody un- uncovered some paperwork from Eddie Seacott, who had been one of the key players in the Black Sox scandal, who had mentioned at some point, hey, look, it was no big deal. The Cubs had done it the year before we did. And so that started this whole controversy. And there was a player on the Cubs who had a horrendous series starting in Boston. He played very well in Chicago, but after this fateful train ride and after they started to fight about money, he gets picked off twice in a game. First time in World Series history and has never happened since that a guy gets picked off twice in a game. He misplays a Ruth triple into a game-winning hit. He's just has a horrible series, and he's kind of the center of this theory that the Cubs to the World Series. I personally think it's hard for one batter, a right fielder, to throw throw a whole series. But I'm fairly certain that everybody got Harry Hooper's message, which was the Red Sox can't win game five or you're not going to get your money. And that it's not a coincidence that the Red Sox lost game five. And gambling in general seems to be a theme through baseball at this time, whether it was uh, managers at Phillies admitted to betting on his own team. Yeah. Boston in general was known as a hub for gambling at this time. Boston was the absolute center of of sports gambling. And Fenway Park especially. The president of the American League, Van Johnson, one of the two guys who showed up drunk at the game, 
uh, tried to really discipline and reprimand the Red Sox for, in his view, allowing all this gambling to go on at Fenway Park. Uh, Sport Sullivan, who was the key figure behind setting up the Black Sox scandal the year later, was a Boston bookie whose headquarters was at the Buckminster Hotel, which you can't really see from inside Fenway Park now that they've built the monster seats. But in those days, it's it's a long fly ball down the left field line. It's right there. So, and that's where the Cubs were staying. So, if Max Flack of the Cubs had wanted to find someone to pay him to throw the World Series, there was no better place to do it than in the lobby of his own hotel <laughs> in Boston. Right. Uh, and part of the reason that baseball was such a, a big betting favorite at that period of time was that there was no horse racing. All the horses were at war. Yeah. You know, we we were still dragging wagons and 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 artillery batteries and things with horses and mules in 1918 in World War One, and so there were no extra horses around that with the luxury of being able to race every day. And so baseball was the only sport that was happening day after day after day after day, and that's where the gamblers gravitated. Hmm. Interesting. So while we just talked about the horse in the war, one war connection I think was really interesting to the World Series was kind of the tradition being started of the Star-Spangled Banner being played. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it was not unheard of for the Star-Spangled Banner to be played at baseball games. There are records of it being played back into the 19th century. Um, but it was rare because there was there was no PA there was no PA system. You, there was no way for you to hear. There was no recorded music. There was no way for you to hear any of this stuff. Um, and so the only way times it would have been played was when there was a band, which typically happened opening day and World Series, and that's about it. Maybe Fourth of July, but it wasn't that common. Uh, in the midst of the World War, with patriotism running high. In the seventh inning of Game 1 of the World Series, the band struck up the Star-Spangled Banner, which technically was not yet even the national anthem. Fred Thomas, we talked about a minute ago, who had left the Red Sox to join the Navy, was stationed at the Great Lakes Naval Station in Chicago. Here's a good indication of how much baseball has changed over 100 years. On the day before Game 1, he showed up at the Red Sox Hotel and said, Guys, I just got two weeks leave. I'm back. I'll play. And so he did. Yeah. Today, we'd, we'd be sitting here saying, Okay, how are they going to make room for him on the 40-man roster? Yeah. But they didn't have to worry about it. He's got two weeks off? Good. He's going to play. Well, he's an active-duty military naval man. The Star-Spangled Banner begins to play, and he snaps to attention at third base and salutes the flag. And other players kind of see what he's doing, and so they stand at attention, and the, everybody in the stands stands up. And after the song is over, there's this big cheer from everybody in the, in the stands, and the New York Times famously said it was the biggest cheer of the whole day. Cubs, being good marketers, said, oh, that worked. Let's do it again tomorrow. And the next day... And Harry Frizee caught on to it as well. And he said, okay, I'm going to do that in Boston too. If if we can't capture the imagination and the enthusiasm of the fans with just baseball, let's find something else. And there was nothing that was more guaranteed to get a reaction out of people during the war than to play the Star-Spangled Banner. Now, it, wasn't, it didn't continue from that point and just keep happening. Yeah. It went away again. 
and went back to whenever there was a band, it might be played or it might not. It wasn't until World War II when there were PA systems in all the stadiums and there was recorded music that you could play the Star Spangled Banner before every game. Uh, but it was a World Series staple after 1918. Interesting. So, kind of get you out of here on, on the topics of the World Series with the differences in baseball that you noticed from doing research on this time period versus baseball today. I know we talked about how would you get someone on the playoff roster or players betting or... Uh, I mean, there, there were cases of, like, fist fights in this World Series, right? Yeah. So, things that would make major headlines today that you you just were commonplace at that time. Yeah, part of it was the amazing resilience of baseball players, particularly pitchers then versus now. Um, on the last weekend of the regular season, the Red Sox started the same pitcher in both games of a doubleheader, and he threw a 12-inning complete game in the second game. There was uh, a pitcher who... Uh, for the Cubs, who earlier in the season threw a 21-inning complete game. Um, and as we talked about, the Red Sox, for a long period in June and, and part of July, went with the three-man rotation. Now, you could, some pitchers could probably get away with doing that today, but their careers would be way shorter, yeah. and some of their seasons would be way shorter. Um, and... It was more commonplace because the team itself didn't have millions and millions of dollars invested in these pitchers. Some guy blows out his elbow. There's no such thing as Tommy John surgery. Okay, just go get another pitcher. We stopped paying him today. He's he's hurt. He doesn't get any more money. We just move on. Today, with guaranteed contracts for tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, you got to protect your investment a little mm-hmm. more. So that was part of it. Um, the casual nature of how players came and went, how rosters changed, how guys would just show up and and suddenly play and then go away again and then come back. Um, That that formality and the structure of the game today was a lot different then. Um, And, you know, we weren't far off in this period of time from raids between the leagues. You know, where owners would go buy players from another team just by offering them more money. Um, It was easier to get out of contracts in those days. But some of the base conflicts we see in baseball today are still the same. Owners and players fighting about money. Owners feeling that the players weren't worth it. Players feeling that you you don't have a game if it isn't for us. They were just arguing over a lot less money. But that didn't change sort of the attitude of the people. One of the reasons that the Red Sox and the Cubs sort of gave up on their strike on after Game 5 and went ahead and played Game 6 anyway was that public sentiment was not on their side. Here they were arguing about how much money they were going to get when the losers were likely to get almost $1,000. And $1,000 was the average annual salary of somebody working in a factory in Boston at the time. So it was hard for anybody to identify from a financial basis with, what, you're not happy? Yeah. That you're going to get as much as I make in a year just for playing six games? So they didn't have that ability to leverage public support. 
Also, there was this idea that my brother or my uncle or my cousin or my father is off fighting and dying in the trenches in the mud in France, and you're getting a three, four, five thousand dollars a year to play a game? Why should I care about you? You're the same age as my brother who's in the military and you're not. So that uh, fans even were not as attached to particular players and didn't have that sort of uh, affinity for players the way they do now. Um, they were all sort of replaceable. Yeah. And and we talk about sort of the, the famous Jerry Seinfeld line about rooting for laundry. Whereas you're rooting for a team regardless who comes, who goes. It was even more like that in those days. All right. So, again, the book, September 1918, War, Plague, and the World Series. Get it wherever you like to get your books. 